This is Community Voice. My name is Kevin Maurer, Director of Community Engagement for the Cape Fear Collective. On this episode, we're talking to Joe Conway, the Director of Health Equity and Human Experience at New Hampshire Regional Medical Center. We talk about how the disasters lay and bear some of the inequities we have in our community, how COVID-19 is impacting food insecurity, and how this crisis might change the way we administer healthcare. If you all recall, Joe was on episode two talking about food deserts, and he's really one of the good guys in our community, and I, I really admire what he's doing. So, hey, uh, so I've got uh, Joe Conway, Director of Health Equity and Human Experience at New Hanover County Regional Medical Center on the line now. Uh, Joe, Joe and I, if you guys remember, uh, we talked in the first first episode I ever recorded for this podcast uh, about food deserts. But on this one, I, wa- I want to talk, we're going to talk a little bit more uh, about the impact of COVID-19 uh, on the community uh, through an equity lens, you know, because I, I feel like disasters lay bare sort of the deep in- inequities we have uh, in our in our community. And, and I think we're going to see that just like we did on the backside of Florence. So, Joe, without further ado, uh, welcome back to the podcast. I appreciate you making time for us. Well, I appreciate you having me on. Thanks so much. So, Joe, kind of following on that on that idea, I mean, I, I, obviously last time we talked, we talked about food insecurity, but but from uh, from an equity standpoint and something that you, you sort of follow and have your thumb on the pulse, uh, what are some of the things you're, you're tracking and, and you're thinking about um, – as of right now with the COVID-19 crisis, but also on the on the backside of it and, and sort of how we kind of rebuild from there? So I think one of the most important things is to make sure that the community, um, you know, follows really what our health professionals are asking them to do right now, the social isolation, and, and definitely if they are exhibiting any of the symptoms, to follow those protocols. They're in place to protect them, their families. Um, and, and utilizing that phone is probably a huge resource right now, calling into uh, Department of Health and Human Services or if they have a primary care physician to go over um, those types of things. And even if they don't have a primary care physician, making those um, health connections so that they um, get the best care uh, possible and follow those protocols. I think on the, on the back end, um, one of the things, but so even before I get to the back end, what we also need to consider is what are the resources available to keep ourselves from breaking the chain of, you know, we really want to break the chain of infection. So, you know, the rubbing alcohol, where are our distribution centers? I was in a call earlier this week where, you know, between uh, Voyage, who is there on the north side, a nonprofit agency is looking to collaborate within the community around setting up distribution centers that would provide access to individuals that need it. Food insecurity, of course, is, is top of mind as our young people are no longer in school who normally rely upon those meals. Um, there, there are really some innovative things that are being looked at. I know Nourish and Sea is already out there. Voyage is out there, Community Boys and Girls Club. Many agencies that are coming together to set up these distribution centers. And um, one really neat idea was just utilizing the school buses. Um, you know, we got bus drivers that obviously need work right now. Well, how do we utilize those buses to maybe carry some of these meals to, say, a bus stop that the children would normally gather at? And we would set up specific times for people to actually come and pick up the food from those bus stops. That way you're actually getting into the neighborhoods. So lots of great ideas and restaurants coming together is phenomenal. Um, and I think on the, on the back end, the, the thing that probably we need to learn that we, we realize with Hurricane uh, Florence is then how do we get our community back to normal, okay? I mean, what does normal look like? Because we all know after this there's going to be a new normal. Um, 
I think that's going to be a pivotal point and an important point, too, to look at the disparities between the population. Did we mitigate those during this time, or are they really popping up on the back end and we need to put some other things in, in place? And so right now, the, the whole focus, at least in the community that I'm dealing with and talking to the nonprofits, we're really trying to mitigate it now so that there isn't much damage on the back end. There isn't these disparities that pop up or pockets of our vulnerable and underserved populations that are not being taken care of. So a lot of it's going right now towards mitigation so you don't have those disparities that pop up on the back end. Now, that mitigation, is that a mitigation uh, and, and a process that you, you sort of was a best practice that you took away from post-Florence? I would say so. Um, a lot of hard lessons learned there, right? And the community came forward and, you know, asked um, our public officials, our, our health officials, our, um, our leaders, hey, what about us? Um, what's going on over here? I, um, we don't have food. We don't have access to things. My power is still turned off. Um, I got trees down in my yard. So this time, it's with that lens of saying, well, we realize there's a gap. How do we avoid that going forward? Which is why we began this dialogue about utilizing the school buses to get food to families, setting up free distribution centers where either people can get cleaning supplies, rubbing alcohol, we can commandeer those things. Um, and, and that even includes collecting things for our healthcare workers. I know um, the uh, Chamber of Commerce, Natalie English, sent out an email today asking area businesses about collecting supplies for our healthcare workers because at the end of the day, should a person you know, have an onset of COVID-19 and actually show the symptoms they need healthcare, well, we got to protect those healthcare workers so that they're able to provide that care. Um, because the community is going to look for, for the hospital, for Med North, for Wilmington Health, for all the healthcare population here to take care of them and, and get them well again. So it is part of a lot of the lessons that we learned during Florence that, you know, kind of kicked us in the teeth, and that's okay. You know, we have dentists right here, and, you know, metaphorically, that we can, we can get the care that we need. So now, how do we put things in place to prevent the back-end effect like we had with Florence? Can you talk a little bit about the cleaning supplies? I was out at Creekwood last week uh, helping give out some food, and, and I was talking with Steve McCrossin from Nourish and See, but one of the things that uh, was in it was in high demand is, is the need for, you know, what, those are Clorox wipes, paper towels, cleaning supplies. Um, so I've been looking for those, those kinds of uh, supplies, and I haven't been very successful in finding them. Do you, do you have any eyes on, on how that's coming and how you might distribute some of those to, to folks who need them? So I, I think we're in the same holding pattern as the community is in. When, when we spoke Monday, um, several of us were going to start calling around to area businesses and even some outside of the state. But one of the things that was brought up in that call is that, you know, each state is having the same challenge. Um, you know, they've all got uh, cases popping up, and they're all telling their, their – um, populations to do the same thing. So the matter of cleaning supplies um, will be difficult. I think one of the most interesting things that did pop up um, on that call was, you know, we brought up using, utilizing our distilleries for, for making rubbing alcohol. Um, I know there is a distillery right here in town, the name escapes me right now, that is helping out in that capacity. Uh, but the challenge that um, uh, I know 
uh, Mayor Bill Sapo and others were going to utilize their contacts within the distillery and brewery industries to see if we can ramp that part of it up. So if we can't actually get surface and clean with anything other than soap and water, which that's fine to use. If we don't have disinfectants, folks would need to understand they can use a good old-fashioned soap and water to remove the dirt and grime anyway from the surfaces. It'll kill a few things. It may not kill the things we want it to kill, but at least it's clean. And then um, if some of our distilleries and breweries here locally in the area can begin to make rubbing alcohol so we can keep our hands uh, clean, uh, that would definitely help out in breaking that chain of infection as well. So we're, we're in the same bucket that every other state is in. And I, I wasn't very confident in that meeting that we were going to be able to to elicit any help outside of the state. We're probably going to be um, looking to our own sources right here in the state of North Carolina in this area. Yeah, I mean, the problem we're running into, I think, is everybody's uh, getting hit by the hurricane at the same time. Uh, unlike, you know, when we get yeah. hit with a hurricane, we can we can solicit stuff. I've, I've heard that that comparison come a couple of times. Uh, on the, something else I want to talk to you about is on the Hispanic population, on the Hispanic side. I know that we... We've uh, in this season we looked at a, a clinic that was offering some some preventive health care uh, for that community. Um, w- w- if you guys have any concerns about that community, I know because some of the issues with undocumented uh, folks who may be concerned about getting into the medical system. Have you guys addressed that at all? And do you have outreach on that, that so that if, if in fact that does happen, they can seek the medical treatment they're going to need? They can always seek medical treatment from any of our healthcare facilities. That the barrier of of what you know the community may believe in reference to being documented or undocumented um, that doesn't stop us from providing care. There should be no fear in reference to you know a, a reporting to uh, you know um, you know any type of documenting agency or anything like that. Um, I think the other thing, too, that we put in place is um, we obviously have our own Spanish interpreters at the hospital. We have a total of, of uh, five that have been as a backup, too, for our outpatient practices. We have some uh, video interpretation um, through a company that we utilize as an organization. And the beauty behind those iPads, too, is that that also allows for telemedicine or telehealth or video um, visits to be done. We're even doing telephone visits at this point with our organization. I believe Med North may do, be doing the same thing. So um, definitely, if any of the Hispanic community is is having those challenges or fears, um, those need to be put at bay. Right now, we are more interested in taking care of our community. Um, we're more interested in making sure that um, they get the proper care that they need as well. So that's the one to definitely take that fear off the table. You know, I, I think a lot of us are staying in our three-foot world, right? You know, we're all sort of, everyone's working from home. You know, every, the travel around has been curtailed. I, I was just at the grocery store today. Um, there, you know, there's a few people there, but, you know, things are changing a little bit. What do you anticipate, you know, on the ba- on the backside of this? And, and how do you think that we, you know, using the lessons learned from Florence, we can apply them so that we can we can be have things in place and be ready to go uh, once, you know, this thing passes? Yeah, it's, I... Admittedly, it's a tough question to answer. This, you know, at least in my 50 years on the planet, even as I look at history, and I know 1918, the Spanish flu has been quoted many times. Um, this is, I honestly believe this is the first um, of its kind, at least in the, in the past few decades, where um, you have so many mediums that are making this much smaller and much personal. 
uh, much more personal to all of us. So, you know, how we would prepare, how we would mitigate some of these things on the back end um, will definitely require a debrief from all of the entities. Um, now, I, I can speak specifically for healthcare, um, but, but I think we'll have to take a look at this and say, you know, how do we get prepared for this in the future? I, I, let, let me put it to you this way, one lesson that I've learned. So at the hospital, and I think many other healthcare organizations around the country have dealt with, you know, this whole thing of telemedicine and seeing your doctor over your uh, computer, cell phone, iPad, whatever, um, it didn't really take off all that well. And now all of a sudden, we can't get enough of it. It's the best way to take care of your patient population uh, that still needs your care, still may need those general follow-up visits, but in the case of a person that may have onset, uh, you know, um, onset of COVID, you know, they're, they're, they're demonstrating all the symptoms, it's the best way to take a look at that person, uh, assess them, and then make a determination as to what are the next steps. So here's something that, you know, uh, as consumers, we've been dragging our feet on, and maybe in a, as a healthcare side, we've been dragging our feet on pushing our patients to do it, but now it's almost a necessity. Um, so if anything I take away from this from a positive spin is this valuable lessons that are being learned. And if nothing else, should something like this happen again, a lot of these systems applications are already being updated to all of our devices at the hospital. We'll be ready for those types of visits should it come to something like this again. And, and it would allow us to respond uh, a lot more meaningfully, a lot quicker, um, all of those things. Um, so that's probably, um, you know, one thing I can already apply on, on the back end is that, you know, this whole telemedicine thing is going to stay off. I think it's going to stay afterwards. I, I think people will find the convenience of it is just more than when it's just an emergency. But do you, do you have any concerns from an equity standpoint with the telemedicine and, and that sort of thing with, with maybe communities that aren't as uh, as wired and connected via the Internet and some of these other services? I, I do. Um, I will tell you that I had a team last year and I worked on a project where we went analog. Um, so we looked at just people that just have a phone, um, whether it's a cell phone or a landline. And it's the lowest common denominator for most of us. One of the interesting things about what we're going through now with COVID-19 and telemedicine and telehealth and all this other kind of good stuff is that CMS has relaxed their policies around um, not just those types of visits for Medicaid patients, um, but also phone visits. Now I don't see anybody. I'm just talking to a person on a landline, uh, which most people can get access to. And if nothing else, we've actually increased the population that we can, we can actually speak to and, and, and assess, I, I think that is helping to mitigate some of those disparities. You're reaching people that would not other be, otherwise be able to be reached because of the technology uh, gap. So um, I like seeing that. I'm hoping that after this is um, over and has kind of settled down, that CMS, Medicaid, Medicare will see the benefit of such visits and keep them in place. There may have to tighten up on the protocols a little bit, but keep things like this in place because let's face it, if I'm at the, if I'm part of that vulnerable um, and underserved population and I may have Medicaid, I may be a self-pay, I may be whatever, 
sometimes taking off from work means I may have to lose my job just to go to a doctor's visit. But if I can handle it during my lunch break on a phone call with my physician, then I'm able to keep my job and keep decent health care. So um, I think while I am concerned, I think my greater concern would be, okay, government, thank you for relaxing the policy during this crisis and emergency, but what lessons can we take from this that we, we need to keep in place post-crisis, post-emergency, um, at least a version of it, if not the exact thing that we're going through right now? Well, Joe, I, I promise you this wouldn't take more than 15 minutes, uh, so our time's up. But I do I do appreciate your time. I do appreciate all the work you're doing. I know uh, in, in my travels around the community, your name comes up often, and you're doing good stuff. So um, obviously we'll check in again because I, I think we run in the same circles. But I do appreciate all the all you're doing and your insight as we, we sort of all try to get our arms around this thing. Well, thanks again for having me. I greatly appreciate your time as well.